sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, hey, you might want to uh, put a mask on before you listen to this uh, show. I don't know that uh, COVID can be transmitted uh, over the air or through the worldwide interweb. But uh, Aaron, did you test positive this morning still, or have you have you taken a test today? No, I'm not going to waste more of these test things. They're they're precious. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, but anyway, you got an unexpected present at Thanksgiving. Uh, more than dessert was shared. And so you are recuperating. How are you feeling today? I feel like shit. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's day five. I will say it's, uh, it's better than two years ago. I got it the first time before any of the lockdowns happened or anything like oh. that, right at the beginning. And that was far worse um yeah no you lost smell and taste the first time around did you I, lose I, it this time no i've been i've been checking on that uh, okay so i i think i'm i think i'm okay in that department yeah just a lot of a lot of fevers i'm sitting here sweating half the day and freezing the other half of the day aye, 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 aye. coughing a lot it's fine oh well, uh, I'm, I'm it sounds like a, Arthur. I'm withering away Arthur. here. I feel like <laughs> when I turned on the camera, I was like, oh, yep, that looks like those 12 pounds that disappeared in the last five days. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it sounds like uh, my Thanksgiving was better than yours, and I needed the context because uh, so? it turned out not to. Yeah. So Allie and I went to New Orleans. We talked about this in the last yep. show. And, um, you know, it turned out not to be as good as we expected, uh, and I lay that firmly uh, to uh, my expectations, and I think Allie's too. What? It's amazing how we can set ourselves up. What did you expect? We went down there. Well, we went down there determined to kind of replicate the great experience we had last time in New Orleans. So, you know, the meals that were so fantastic at the restaurant we love, which it's not there now. What? And Where'd it go? Yeah, that, I don't know, but it's not there. The hotel uh, is now condos, and there's a freaking, uh, 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 I don't know, like a porn shop. I don't know. It's just a mess. Uh, you know, so, and the, it rained the first three days that we were there. And, uh, you know, the the apartment that I rented looked a whole lot better online than it did when we walked through the door. Oh, uh, man. I, I do. I do love that your past joy and marriage and expectations for the future were wrecked by a porn shop. There just seems <laughs> like there's something <laughs> interesting about that. So, yeah, but, yeah. but come on, there's other places to eat in New Orleans. There are. There are. There. You know, we flew on Thanksgiving, and that was a good choice, by the way. Not very many people in the airport. You know, plenty of room on the plane. Everybody in. a great mood. So that was nice. The flight down was nice. Most of the restaurants in New Orleans closed on Thanksgiving, but I'd done my research in advance and I'd made reservations at a place that was having a Thanksgiving dinner, which I, I, I probably, you know, we went in thinking this is going to be the greatest Thanksgiving dinner we've ever had in our lives. 
uh, we probably should have calibrated our expectations a little better because it really it wasn't that it wasn't that great. It was okay. Oh, I don't know. And then uh, I don't know. You know, wake up to rain, and it's uh, yeah. But we did uh, we did uh, we did Cafe du Monde and got the coffee and the beignets. Our second our first morning there, and that was a good choice. We got the muffaletta at the French market. That was a very good choice. Uh, I signed up for a swamp tour. We took a swamp tour, man. Nice. Did you see uh, some alligators? Well, we would have if the sun had been out, but it was raining. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> only the two of us on the boat in a driving rain. Uh, we were just absolutely soaked. And we're out in the middle of the swamp. And I get this weather alert on my phone. You ever get those? Yeah. This, you know, National Weather Service (laughs) telling me that there's a tornado has been spotted in the area and we're to seek shelter immediately in a substantial structure. Well, a pontoon boat's pretty substantial. I mean, it's it's better than a canoe. It's more substantial than a kayak. (laughs) Substantial is a very, you know, subjective word. Just to, yeah, there we are. That was just to add a little adrenaline to the experience. Uh, no, no tornado, fortunately. Uh, I did, and and then Allie got sick. But on Sunday, when the sun came out, the one day was sunny. Allie was too sick to go out. However, she gave me permission to do the one thing I had really wanted to do in New Orleans. Was I wanted to visit the World War II Museum, the National World War II Museum, which is freaking amazing. And uh, so, and so I got to go, which was a win for me. Allie didn't have to go, which was a win for her. She's not a fan of museums. Uh, and then I bought is that, the why, is that why you always end up taking me to museums? I didn't oh, know yeah. that, that, that I was replacing Allie in that regard. Allie, I've given up trying to excite Allie about museums. I still remember a time I took her to the St. Louis Arch, right? Mm-hmm. And you go in, you go downstairs. And to the right is a museum with great artifacts. And to the left is the gift shop. Yep. So I said, Allie, you want to go to the museum? She said, is any of that shit for sale? I uh. said, no. <laughs> she said, I'll meet you in the gift shop. Anyway, that's funny. Uh, that was well, Thanksgiving and, for us. Well, that, that sounds uh, disappointing. I don't know what to say. <laughs> What you know? What it is? It's a good story. There you That's go. That's what we it's, just it shelved sounds, it as a good story. Honestly, it sounds like one of those Hallmark movies where people decide, like, okay, no kids this year. We're going off on a vacation instead. Yeah, and right. We're gonna, yeah. And then they end up being like, eh, I miss my kids. And then they, you yeah. know, except in those stories, they would have made it back at some point for a meal with the kids and. You guys, you, know, you just were alone in a World War II museum. <laughs> That's right. But I didn't catch COVID. So, I, you know, it was, it was great. There you yeah. go. Well. Hey, speaking of great, we got a great yeah. guest this week. We do. We got a returning mm-hmm. guest, and it's, it's going to be a good one. Uh, man, I love, I love real conversations, and it doesn't get much realer than this. And this is not, it's not going to be a Hallmark movie. No. It, is, it is not. And we will jump in with you, our friends out there on the interweb, when we return here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Pirate Monk. 
Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. And what a joy it is to have with us this week a returning guest, a good friend of the Samson Society, known each other for a long time. Uh, Marnie Faree is joining us today. Hi, Marnie. Hi, I'm so glad to be with y'all again. I always, <laughs> always enjoy this. Well, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with Marnie, and I suppose there are a few out there, she really is a pioneer a trailblazer in the field of sex addiction recovery. I first met her, I think, my first year into recovery. Saw this amazing woman really? step into a room. This has been about 1999. You were the only woman in the room, and you came in and told your story at a speaker's meeting, an SA speaker's meeting. Oh, wow. Uh, I have been in recovery um, since 91, uh, in the room since 92 at that point. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, when did did you uh, launch the Bethesda Workshops? Bethesda Workshops, the precursor to what's now Bethesda Workshops, began in 1997 with Uh, the first intensive clinical workshop for women struggling with sex addiction, which of course was my story and my passion Mm -hmm. and my calling. I've been doing counseling around that since 95 when I Mm -hmm. finished my master's. Um, And the first one was held in June of 1997. And ultimately then the, the ministry grew and incorporated the other populations struggling with sex addiction. So this year is our 25th celebration uh of ministry congratulations cool thing now this goes into this goes into your last few years that we want to hear more about this story how you became comfortable telling this story obviously nate was blown away he comes into a room and you were able to articulate your story without fear and shame and i know that was huge at that time Ugh. for Nate as it is for any of us. And and then at, at what point did you get married in that process and how did that work out with you working through that with a spouse? Oh, well, I'd already been married forever when I entered recovery. So, okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so how, I was, how, I was already married and, um, and you know, that was, that was obviously a journey as well, but had married in uh, 1981. So had been married wow. about 10 years when I first started a healing journey and um, and had been acting out the last probably four years of that, of that relationship mm-hmm. at that point. Um, started off um, well, the best, healthiest relationship I had had until that mm-hmm. point, but I had no understanding of my own story, my own trauma story, my own story as an addict um, until I began acting out again in, in that relationship several years into it with really small children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you, you walk through that and then bring us like bridge the gap between that and your last few years and things that God's showing you from a whole new perspective. <laughs> well, that is uh, also quite, quite the, the story. Um, God had called me from the very beginning, from my own crash and burn around my own addiction and the first counseling appointment that I did. Um, I'm not sure that it was audible, but it sure felt audible. God said, you will tell this story. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I had done that very openly, um, first in meetings as Nate experienced, and then 
uh, and other platforms, including really great big ones like Dateline. So I was very comfortable telling the story and was very comfortable doing my own work and had done that consistently then uh, since since 1991, 1992. Um, and it was always telling a story of addiction. I identify very clearly as a grateful, recovering woman who struggles and had struggled with love, sex, relationship, addiction, um, as a sexual trauma survivor, as I came to understand that story. So all of those mm-hmm. were very familiar to me and kind of a foundation upon which I, I founded Bethesda Workshops. I was aware of my story on the other side of the coin as the daughter of a sex addict because I grew up in a sexually addicted home. Um, and understanding my mother's story some uh, as the wife of a sex addict, but never, ever imagined that I was also the partner of a sex addict. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was quite, quite a journey. I uh, really embraced recovery and, you know, certainly have not done this this recovery journey perfectly. I do not consider that I have been sober this entire time. Uh, if we're looking at, at um, many certainly one of the sex addiction fellowships um, definition of sobriety, but I was always, always, always on the journey and always uh, concerned about it, always seeking to go deeper into my own definitions of recovery and live accordingly. Um, And sadly, my marriage always struggled. I had hoped when I entered recovery, well, actually it was easy until I entered recovery uh, because we (laughs) life together really well and I wasn't acting out. So you know, like we had two beautiful children and so life was really pretty good. But when I entered recovery and learned what it really meant to live in authenticity, what it really meant to live in integrity, what it meant to embrace your story, uh, learned all of the implications of my own sexual abuse, of of all of the attachment breaches that I had experienced, I really hoped and wanted my husband to join me on that, to join me on that journey of going deeper, 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 deeper always. Um and he he put a, a couple of toes into into recovery a time or two, um, mostly very early in the process. Went to actually a few partner related meetings and um, never though really joined me in in the journey. And that was extremely difficult. What I had always wanted, always, and I still get emotional about this was was to have, if I'm going to be married, to have a partner who would show up, who was was so authentic and deeply connected emotionally and spiritually and relationally and recreationally and sexually and in, in, in every way. Uh, and I didn't have that. And I became aware that I didn't have that. So I had known that for a long time. Um, uh, again, my husband was a really good man and a kind man, and we did life together really well as roommates. And when I kept insisting and begging and cajoling and uh, occasionally berating uh, <laughs> that I really wanted more, that this relationship deserved more, that he deserved more as as a person who had been wounded by my betrayals, I had always begged him to do his own partner work around that, that he deserved to be angry and let us work through all of that. Uh, and when he wouldn't, it just became so challenging for me. Uh, and I spent the next you know, 20 years um, trying to do what I knew to do to heal that relationship, which started off like most partners, God fix him. Um, <laughs> there, I think there were 
good many things that uh, he would have benefited from and I would have benefited and the relationship would have been from had he addressed them. Um, and I learned that like all partners do, but at this point I didn't know I was a partner. I just knew I was a marriage person uh, mm-hmm. in a very, very, very lonely, extraordinarily disconnected relationship. Uh, so when when Fix Him wasn't successful, then I kept begging God, then would you fix me? And that was much more successful, again, just in terms of I had become very resentful of my husband and very angry and pretty bitchy, to be honest, um, at different times, just out of the desperation of I really so want more. Um, and so I began really to work on that and did some very intense work over the last dozen years or so around all of my own woundedness and abandonment issues and all of that to to um, get more realistic expectations of what it might mm-hmm. be like to have this gaping still hole inside around relationships um, filled. And when still that didn't work, I started begging God, then just will you help me? Whatever that looks like, will you help? I'm, I'm miserable. And I came to believe I truly think maybe I'm going to die. The disconnect mm-hmm. in that relationship so wreck replicated all of the incredible wounds of my childhood, all of the not being chosen, somebody else's needs are always more important, uh, So such complete abandonment. My mother died when I was very young. My dad was an active sex addict all of his life, big deal pastor who deeply loved the Lord and struggled with addiction. Um, so all of that, I was daily putting myself repeatedly in a situation that so replicated my trauma. And I did lots and lots of trauma work the last five years around all of that until I began to realize, you know what? Uh, And there was a a clear kind of point about this that I felt again that God said, okay, um, it it is enough. You you get to make some choices that honor yourself. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow. Uh, so begin to explore what that looked like. And I chose to separate from my husband. Um, I did not have any plans to divorce. There wasn't a particular need to divorce. Again, we did life together really well. We've got grown children. We have grandchildren. Um, I thought that we would remain separated, um, but that I would never live with him again and put myself into that that crucible of a situation that was repeatedly being so emotionally damaging to me Um, and lived like that for almost a year. And then came a night a couple of years ago, almost now that, um, that I made an astonishing discovery. Uh, It happened to be email uh, and all the story is too long, but it, um, it was in, in the home where he still lived. I lived very close by. I was over there at his invitation, helping to do some things, helping to do some email stuff that supposedly he didn't know how to do. Uh, and I access email and here pops up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Craigslist um, back and forth. Uh, yeah. And it was very, very clear that this had been going on for a long, long time and went way beyond emails. Um mm-hmm. And it, that I was absolutely shocked. I mean, I really thought I had it had occurred to me occasionally that you know I wonder if he's looking at pornography or anything. And and literally a handful of times through those fifteen years, I checked computer history, didn't find 
didn't find any pornography. I'm like, well, and I really thought he was too shut down to be acting out. And I've come to understand if I put my clinical hat on for a minute instead of a wife hat, um, probably acting out was the only time that he ever felt alive. Mm-hmm. That's the way this works, too. Mm-hmm. I just didn't suspect that. But when I saw it, I I was absolutely shocked. I really mm-hmm. was. Uh, I felt stupid. You know, I teach this mm-hmm. stuff. I've taught this stuff for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I truly did not see the signs of acting out. There wasn't anything for him to lie about because he was just so disconnected. There was never anything to talk about, if that makes sense. I mean, I get that this behavior was deceitful, but it wasn't like there was something that had been a flag before and I'm asking about it and getting gaslighted. I was just kind of getting totally, completely gaslighted by an entire whole secret thing that, uh, that I was totally unaware of. So... Uh, I decided very quickly that I was going to divorce. He reacted with lots and lots of anger, which was um, out of character for him. I had always thought and had told him often, I think you're really, really angry inside. And at some point that's going to blow up. Mm. Um, and it did uh, around this this situation. Um, and he was not at all interested in recovery, which was clear from the beginning. And I was done. So felt like I had done so much work for so long and and with this secret for so long that um, that that I chose to divorce. Uh, hmm. And so after 40 years, I am now divorced uh, wow. and have gone through so much of the standard stuff that a partner does about that. You know, I've rewritten our history. <laughs> well, I wonder if at this point, could I have done this differently that might have differently invited him into a relationship? And to honor myself, I truly believe you couldn't have lived with me for 25 years of recovery and not known this is possible. You know, mm-hmm. um, you you couldn't have had anybody beg a partner more, you know, me being the addict, him being the partner. It was my understanding of our relationship right. uh, for an addict to beg a partner more. Could you please be angry with me? Could you say anything? Could you do anything about about this. Um, and I, I also was aware that I, I was aware there were significant challenges and I chose to stay. And this has been quite the process, but today I'm glad I chose to stay. Those last three years that I really thought might kill me and I wasn't going to go out by myself. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. okay, if I am this miserable, I mean, I'm not serious. <laughs> but truly, it was just like, whoa, you're not going to get off scot-free here about this deal. Um, those very intense years taught me so, so, so much. And I'm really grateful. Anyone that's gone through any kind of discovery like that goes through that process of having to rewrite the history. Sure. And I'm curious about the different emotions that you felt because that's going to bring up the hurt and betrayal feelings, but also feelings of relief that you weren't crazy. There's now a reason for things you were feeling. So tell me about all of that wacky (laughs) mix of stuff you must have gone through. And those two extremes are exactly right. Uh, I was so shocked. I was heartbroken. Uh, I was so angry that Seriously, after all of this stuff and all of this work, really, you couldn't 
all of these millions of times, you couldn't have said, well, actually, you know what? I got my own stuff going on. Um, I'm trying not to yeah. curse here with your podcast. Um, oh, and, no, no. Uh, and we're a cursing podcast. So it's okay. uh, I love it. You know, I've got my own <laughs> shit going on and, and I, I've never told you about it, but you might as well know. And I really don't want to be in this relationship. I would be like, wow. Well, okay. So I was so angry at all the, what felt like wasted years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also so unbelievably relieved um, from the get go. Both of those were true. And I've spent last two and a half years, um, continuing to deal with, with both of those extremes. So unbelievably relieved. Yeah, there is a reason. Um, and, and it felt like my ticket out, um, not in any rigid religiosity way of, Oh my goodness. Now I've got some, um, uh, what's, what's all the lingo that's the scriptural reason for divorce. Uh, That was not my thinking at all, but just, it was like, you know what? I, I am so clearly done because I would have, it was, it was a bigger step to choose to separate from him than it was to divorce him because I mm-hmm. separated from him just thinking you're a shutdown man. I think there's some neurodiverse issues going on there um, mm-hmm. as well in him. That's a whole different podcast um, that, that uh, maybe Asperger's type syndrome that, that makes some of that communication and that, stepping into relationship difficult. Um, But it felt like I was being so selfish, you know, to divorce Mm -hmm. this guy after I had betrayed him, you know, Mm -hmm. at that that point, Mm -hmm. almost 30 years before. um, Mm -hmm. And, and done all this work, it still felt selfish that he's a good man. He didn't beat me. He doesn't abuse alcohol. We do life really well. We get along really well. Uh, so I'm going to leave him because I'm emotionally unfulfilled. You know, all of those very vicious inner voices really, really just mm-hmm. jumped at me until truly it was like, I I am, I think I'm going to die. I am just, I mean, I lost 20 pounds. I just, I'm so, un, and I'm a little person to start with. Um, I just don't think I can do this anymore. So it was such a relief. Uh, largely. And today, that's what I feel more than anything was just relief. Can you speak to with this new lens, which again, I find so insane how, how many times I think, okay, God, we've worked through this, let's go the next thing. And he's like, Oh, no, this is, this is a wheel, we're going to go back to the beginning. (laughs) With this new lens, what you just described to me feels like the insane illogical aspect of addiction because logically I would think that he would have considered you the safest person in the world to be honest with, (laughs) but that's logical. Right. And a person deep in their own addiction and shame does not think like that, which then drive us crazy when we're running it through. Yeah, but, and then we make that, logical supposition that should make all the pieces come together. Right. So how have you reconciled the illogical aspect of his addiction, knowing what it is, but also feeling it from the other side? Um, that's still somewhat is a process. You know, we get to revisit these things always. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a lot more completed process than it was a few years ago, for sure. 
again, part of it, I think, is is truly a um, a neurodiverse issue of that that really made it very hard. Once or twice, he would say, "I do feel things. It's just really hard for me." And you know, so I'm not going to counseling, or I'm not talking with you, or all that kind of stuff. And finally, I said, since this is a cursing podcast, I don't really give a shit if it's hard for you. It's really hard for me to get sober and stay sober. It's really, really hard for me to stay sober, especially married to you right now. How, how incredible this thing is. Um, and, and in some ways, though, that helps a little bit. But at the same time, it's like all of us have our stuff. And we all get to do our healing journey from our stuff. If debilitating anxiety is part of that, if untreated bipolar is part of that, if Asperger's, um, something about spectrum stuff is part of that, if shame is part of that, whatever it is, we all get to deal with that. And he Mm -hmm. has repeatedly chosen not to. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's back back to step one. I am powerless over that. Mm -hmm. I acceptance is the key to my serenity. I cannot make that different. Mm -hmm. And so is that the key? I'm curious from both of your perspectives, when we are grappling for rational answers for other people's behaviors, and we're trying to set up opportunities for them to grow, because it's, it is a true thing that sometimes our partner does need to do work. Sure. And we can't make them, but a lot of times like, yeah, but you need to do your own at some point when you feel like, okay, I've been doing it. I I need a partner in this. What kind of mm, struggles with hope and disappointment do we set ourselves up in when we focus on the sneaky controlling aspect of trying to make things rational? Because that just seems like another form of controlling the information or the other person. Speak to that from both of your perspectives. (laughs) <laughs> uh, there's a whole lot packed in there, Aaron. Gosh, um, I don't even kind of know where to start. Uh, the word hope jumped out at me. Let me talk about that for a minute. It actually, I came to the point where I had truly lost any hope. And I still stayed for the last three years. I had given up that I would ever have the kind of relationship that that I believe God intended. That if you're mm-hmm. going to be married, this is supposed to be this you know, connected, intimate, I'm not just talking sexually, of course, um, supportive thing, a real partnership. And I had given up hope about that, which which initially brought some relief because I kept stopped just trying to think, maybe this is going to be different, maybe at this time, maybe at that. And that, for me, that's how I term coming, the beginning part of coming to acceptance about I cannot change him also mm-hmm. meant I also, for myself, can't keep hoping he's going to change because that mm-hmm. was too painful. That That is an untenable position uh, to be in this situation that you you cannot change despite doing healthy things like working on yourself to do it uh, and then still hoping it's going to. That, that was the most torturous part of this whole thing. Um, so... But but then also from that place of he's truly not going to change, open the door to now what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. At a deeper level than just doing my own work. It was, again, finally to I'm going to remove myself from this situation that is very dysfunctional, 
that to me had become very toxic. That constant um, disengagement was extraordinarily painful. Um, and and to I, I talk about it, I think about it internally, honoring myself. I deserve more than mm-hmm. if I'm going to be partnered than to have it look like this. And that's not being mm-hmm. selfish. It's it's a holy desire of my heart. And I discovered when I just separated and from the beginning, uh, from from making that decision and then telling him about it a week later and then actually moving out uh, four or five days after that, I felt the most astonishing sense of relief, mm-hmm. uh, even almost giddy, uh, almost, oh, my goodness. And I discovered when there's this relationship bucket uh, and, and it's inside a bucket of one's heart, one's own um, internal space. And it doesn't just have a hole in it. It doesn't have a bottom. Mm-hmm. You can pour as much good stuff in it as possible. I had deep, wonderful, healthy connections with other people and amazing spirituality and support system and all that kind of stuff. And it still, I was, I was absolutely starving to death. And I discovered that when you remove yourself structurally from that situation uh, as the partner, that that then all of this good self-care stuff that I've been doing for forever, but super intensely, especially in terms of all of my own trauma work that that I'd done a whole lot of, but doing a different modality on uh, some somatic work that was mm-hmm. extraordinarily, uh, and I'm still involved in that process, uh, very, very helpful to me, that that then all of that work fills that bucket. Mm-hmm. which is really, really, really cool uh, and mm-hmm. life-giving and joy-giving and contentment and peace and, and all of that. I truly say that despite all of the pain and the hurt and the anger and the grief, oh, I have grieved for this, but I've grieved for this relationship for the last 20 years, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first 10 years in recovery, I had hope. Um, mm-hmm. And since then, it's been really devastating. Um, and and I, I am, am living my, my best life, and I'm mm-hmm. grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I really am. Um, so I don't yeah, know that that really answered the question because there was yeah. just so much involved in that. But that's what has just come yeah. out of my mouth in this last five minutes. That's well, Marnie, Marnie, as you said, you know, you've been teaching this stuff. You've been working with couples for 25 years. Or at least you uh, you set up uh, the Bethesda workshops right, set up so right, wonderfully, right. right? So typically it's the it's typically it's the man who shows up. Uh, partners are invited into the process. You even have a weekend for the couples, right? And there uh, and there's always, from my understanding, uh, and by the way, I know of several marriages that have not just survived but have thrived that have been mm-hmm. launched into a new orbit. I mean, you didn't just save those marriages. I mean, what God used Bethesda Workshop right. really to do miraculous things in the lives of families. But there are partners who choose not to do that. There are always partners who choose not to do that. Right. They don't, the, the invitation is there. They don't accept it. They don't show up. They don't want to do it. Um, you are an empathetic person. You have a you came into this, uh, your own experience, with a pretty good understanding of what a partner goes through when she or he discovers betrayal. When it, What I'm wondering is, when it came your turn to experience it, was it anything about it that 
surprised you? You've been you've been around this. You've been teaching it for a long time. Was there anything about the experience that surprised you? Yes, there was one thing. Um, I have said the last two to three years, probably no one on the planet was better positioned to make this discovery than I was. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, again, I had 30 years of my personal recovery. I had these last intense super years of doing even deeper trauma work. I had an astonishing support system. Uh, I had all of the clinical knowledge and all the experience with the 6,500 people who've come through Bethesda workshops. So I, I truly had, you know, I was miles up on Mm -hmm. your average partner uh, to discover this. And I'm very, very, very grateful for that. Um, What surprised me was that despite having such an astonishing support system, I mean, I made this discovery relatively early evening, 7, 7.30-ish one evening. And by 9 p.m., I had talked with four inner circle people who were dear, dear, dear to me and walking with me. And can can I come sit with you, though? None of them lived in Nashville. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the next morning, uh, there were almost 20 people added to that inner circle who were mm-hmm. aware that's, that's incredible. Well, I spent 30 years building that support system, mm-hmm. but what mm-hmm. surprised me, Nate, is that even having a terrific support system who've walked with me, who are still walking with me, that doesn't really take away the pain. Mm-hmm. I, I really thought I hope I hadn't overtly taught it like this, but but I thought inside, if you just, you need a support system and that's really going to help. What it helps with is not feeling so alone. Mm-hmm. I did not feel alone in all of this. Again, I had so many people, I could call it 2 a.m. I could, you know, I just, uh, just truly, truly astonishing support system that stayed with me through through all the craziness. Uh, of the divorce process and all the, all the stuff about that. So I never, ever felt alone, which is astonishing after feeling alone all of my life. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that abandonment, that loneliness, is that's my core, core, core trauma wound uh, that I had done so much work on, but that sure surfaced about uh, around this, this marriage partnership. So that's a gift. And many partners mm-hmm. feel completely alone. So for them to, to have a support system is is an amazing benefit, and and it's awesome. I was just surprised that it the depth of the pain I bet was still the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And you had the pain. You weren't alone in the pain, but you had the pain. But man, it was the 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 pits were deep, 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 yeah. deep. They were also still filled with gratitude. It was very much this juxtaposition of joy and overwhelming grief and mm-hmm. anger and, and pain. Um, one of the things that I struggle with that I think a lot of partners do, the partners who have known for a long time, you know, where there was a pornography problem or there was a whatever pro- kind of problem it was, and typically they've been guests. Lighted. Their person has said, oh, now we're married. We're having sex. I'm not going to have any difficulties with that anymore, or I'm not going to do it again or whatever. But the partners who've known for a long time and chosen to stay really struggle with, how come I didn't really trust my gut in the beginning? How come I I kept believing that this was going to change? Uh, I 
experienced that just in terms of I've known for so long this relationship was was in significant trouble that I couldn't fix it. Why did I stay? Especially the last 15 years, but especially the last five. And and what I know today, y'all, is that my loving God did things in and with me in that time period that I don't think could have happened any other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, every year for those last 15 years, I would spend usually almost a week over in the mountains of Western North Carolina, where we had a small place uh, by myself, usually in the late summer, wrestling with God about this, mm-hmm. just pouring my heart out, writing the kind of stuff you'd never publish. Uh, yeah. Just, just crying almost sackcloth and ashes type stuff with God about why, 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 why. Uh, and every time at the, every year at the end of that time, uh, I felt a clear direction from God and I felt in my heart, and you're supposed to stay. This, you, you are supposed to stay. There is more, there's more for you to learn. You are supposed to stay. And I did. Mm-hmm. Until again, as I mentioned, I kind of felt this, this release of, you it's enough it it Mm -hmm. literally that that's the word that I heard it's been enough and you can Mm go and as I was talking with um actually one of my dear brothers and I have two brothers and they both have been astonishing supports through all of this for which I'm immeasurably grateful but talking about all of that and just the grief of wasted 15 years I mean I got divorced at 65 what would it look like if I had done that at 50 I mean Mm -hmm. you know to have that much of my life open and available if I ever chose to have uh, another significant relationship, chose to be married again, which, by the way, I don't think I'm going to. Just mm, been there, done that twice. I just don't think I'm doing this again. But regardless, it's still a desire of my heart to, if I'm going to have a partnership, to have it been authentic and healthy and deeply connected. But anyway, just talking about, you know, why those wasted years and my dear brother just kind of happened to be a conversation in person, which he lives multiple states away, but he was visiting and it was so sweet. And he looked at me for a long time and then he just gave me a big hug and he said, you know, little sister, it's never a bad thing to re-up with God. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And that perspective has helped me, that they weren't wasted years. Um, I got to keep doing Bethesda. Um, My former husband was actually very practically helpful with Bethesda. I mean, he'd go to Sam's and buy bottled water or, you know, he would do. um, During that time, the ministry got our own building and he helped come and paint and move furniture and just just all kinds of stuff. I got to go deeper, deeper, deeper into myself and into a relationship with the God of my understanding. And, and it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm just super, super grateful to be here today in my own home where I'm completely safe, where I'm astonishingly nourished and nurtured because I do a really good job at that. Um, oh, you learned some self-care on the process, did you? You know, I had been doing it for 25 years. It just wasn't <laughs> enough when there's no bottom in the bucket. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And I'm just, I am grateful. I am very, I am very grateful. Let me throw this out to 
both of you, please. And I don't remember if we've talked about it on the show before. Chalk that up to COVID brain. But when you're talking about hope, it's bring me back to some some really hard times in my life where I struggled with hope in regard to other people and then how that affected my relationship with God because I really thought that my best shot was to just stop hoping, that I'd find relief if I could stop hoping. But I only found that disconnected me from God because to not hope in them was to believe that God didn't care enough or was not powerful enough to do something miraculous in their life. So that just created more distance between me and God and me and the other person. And I I realized that I had conflated my idea of hope and my idea of expectation. Yes. That hope was completely supposed to be built on what God could do by the person and power of Jesus in another person's life. And that standard is so high that nobody could even reach it without Jesus, but it's there and it's beautiful. And I needed to maintain that for the other person, but I could not expect that my expectation needed to be based on their track record. That if I kept expecting them to do what only Jesus could do, if they were willing to go on that journey, I would be disappointed I would be frustrated, but when I was able to only expect from them what they had shown that they could do, and maybe a little more, maybe raise the bar a little more, that I would not be devastated every time they did the thing that they already showed me they were going to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was in the conflation of hope and expectation that I found so much resentment towards others and disconnection with God. So speak to me about how hope and expectation and those two concepts have affected or your lives and have possibly changed over the years as you've seen and experienced new things. I think for me, Aaron, my hope had to get resurrected solely dependent on God. Hmm. Because for me, when I lost hope in this relationship, then God's invitation was, what if you tried hoping just in me? What if you, what would your life look like if you really believed that I am enough? Just me. Mm-hmm. And I began a process of spiritual direction, probably 10 ish, maybe even 12, I don't know, a long time ago. And that's what I worked on, believing that God was enough. And I, I would, fuss and curse at my spiritual director. Don't you give me this BS about God being enough. You know, I've heard that all my life. And she's like, no, 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 I'm not talking about the kind of stuff that you've heard. I'm talking about a very embodied experiential process of God's presence. That can be enough. And I will tell you that, that the vast majority of the time it took years to develop that, but I experienced that. And, Mm -hmm. um, And so for me to not expect that someone else was going to be able to be a part of that process, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the process of being fulfilled, of having hope, that truly it was just God. And the language so fails me and fails all of us because theologically and because in so many of our religious circles, 
we've just been told as this spiritual band-aid is really a spiritual bypass from doing this deep work. God is enough. God and God what provides is enough. And I don't know how to articulate what I'm saying other than to just try to show you my heart about it. But I came to find very clearly a sense of God's presence in some specific tangible things, but none of them was a person. Um, and hawks and the therapy dog that's lying here at my feet that God brought to me in the the beginning of the end uh, and the end mm-hmm. of the beginning of this process uh, early in the pandemic. Um, and in just all different kinds of small, minute ways, sometimes they involve another person. It's an email from somebody saying I went to Bethesda workshops in 2013 and and, you know, now I want you to know what this difference has made just different ways. Sometimes it's something that I get to do from somebody else. I'm like, God, you were there in that. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a whole different way of experiencing and walking with God. That's, that's different from anything I've ever known before. And, Mm. um, and deep. And I found that that is enough. And I keep putting my hope in that and it's solid. That's good. That's good. Well, I certainly trust, Marnie, that uh, your work, your ministry, your influence uh, is going to continue unabated uh, or actually is going to continue to grow as God continues. Uh, You know, I had a a conversation yesterday that uh, a theme that has been coming up fairly regularly lately. Uh, A woman who was frustrated because uh, when she went to seek help as a partner, she found this community in which the first solution for the partner of a sex addict is divorce. And she felt herself pushed in that direction from the moment she walked in the room. And her idea was, hey, uh, my husband's doing his work and I want to save this marriage. That's one end of the spectrum. Then there's this other end of the spectrum where the, um, the whole aim of, the the therapist or the counselor or the program is to save the marriage. Uh, It's not focused on the people. It's focused on, we've got to save the marriage because if the marriage goes under somehow, yeah, then somehow the recovery isn't real. The healing isn't true. Jesus wasn't present. Uh, To maintain uh, our focus as I believe God maintains his on the hearts of people to have a big picture orientation and to see that uh, he will bring healing, not just to us, but to partners and to member extended members of the family, even through something as difficult as separation or divorce. Um, I I don't know if you've encountered that, uh, that tension or you've heard that from, husbands and wives in this process or whether you even battled it yourself when you thought about, you know, do it, do I actually end this marriage? Um, I, I mean, again, I, I stayed for so long um, yeah. until, until it was time to, to leave. So yeah. I, I think again, the, the principles are, um, it takes two healthy people to have a healthy relationship. One mm-hmm. person can blow it up, but yeah. it takes two healthy people to have a healthy relationship. And yeah. 
I discovered for myself long-term, even living in sobriety and living with a great support system and all kinds of self-care, that um, that it wasn't honoring myself to stay in a relationship that from the connection standpoint, attunement attachment standpoint, was a shambles. Yeah, right. Gotcha. It was almost a sham. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that helped for me was to leave it. Yeah. Um, that was not the desire of my heart. That no. was not what I wanted. Uh, yeah. And I think I think the wisdom is always what we tell partners always, but, but also it's applies to addicts. Don't make any permanent decisions for ideally a year after whatever your beginning point is. Either stuff mm-hmm. blows up or it's discovery or it's a, a disclosure or it's your own entering recovery. Just stay where you are. Now, if there's mm-hmm. abuse and different things, maybe you do need to separate just either mm-hmm. because it's so volatile or because um, it's so enmeshed that two people can't separate enough to do their own work if they're still physically living, living with each other. But in terms of taking some great big steps, which would include renewing your marriage vows. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. <laughs> How many people? Really yeah. worked for a year, mostly on yourself and seeing what your other person's going to do and done some relationship work. If your other person's doing some work. Um, and I still think that's wisdom. I didn't do that. And from the time of discovery Mm -hmm. and, uh, and for me, it was because particularly of the intensity of the last five years and what I had done for so long, I was just like, no, uh, I'm done. So, so for, for people to walk into supposedly a healing space and get pressured one way or the other is mm-hmm. not healthy or helpful. It's yes. There is hope there. I, I tell partners now, everybody gets to have the happily ever after story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to involve your marriage gets saved. Every mm-hmm. single person gets to have a happily ever after story and you're in control of that. Mm-hmm. And so to, to do your own work, to see what's, what's going to happen. Uh, that's that's the invitation of of healing spaces. Wonderful. Well, Nate, I think we're in a spot now that that we can wrap this whole show up with Marnie because <laughs> we've gone long enough that we d- we don't even have to do a closing segment, and that way Marnie can sign off with us. Oh, okay, all right. Well, well I we should point listeners okay. towards how they can find out more about her Bethesda work. Um, that's easy. We have we have a really comprehensive website, Bethesda Workshops, plural with an S, dot org. So one word, Bethesda, spelled like Bethesda, Maryland, B-E-T-H-E-S-D-A, workshops with an S, dot O-R-G. Um, there's, even if you're not interested or able or willing or whatever to come to one of our clinical intensives, which is the focus of our ministry. We do not do any individual counseling or ongoing groups. Um, there's tons and tons and tons of information to read uh, when your life's falling apart or you're in the pit at the middle of the night or, or at noon, whenever. Um, there are lots of resources, um, and that that's the, the best way. There are email links to contact us both for general info and my email is on that website as well. And isn't it fascinating listeners and Nate that 
Marnie's been open with her journey, and her expertise is through the journey itself. And now here you are sharing another piece of the journey, <laughs> which, which makes you as as or more qualified than anyone to give mm-hmm. insight to the weeds. Thank, yeah, yeah. thank you. And I'm humbled by that and immensely grateful. Hmm. Well, I'm grateful that you... Uh, we're able to join us again. We're willing to join us again. It's always uh, so inspiring and informative to have a conversation with you, Marty. I hope thank you. I appreciate the great work of Sansom Society for sure. All right, listeners. I guess that's it for this for this episode. Uh, you can contact us at always at as always at piratemonkpodcast at gmail dot com. Send us your questions, your comments, your pushback. Uh, uh, we uh, we thrive on your feedback. Well, that's it for this time. Until next week, then. I'm Nate. And I'm Aaron. And I'm Marnie. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Our the Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.